dare great things for Christ. Christ calls us to dare great things. In the marketplace, as well as in the mission field, there has never been a time like the present for the spirit of the Catholic entrepreneur. Now is the time for men and women of great courage and great vision to engage our church and our culture. Now is the time to dare great things. And here is your host as we dare great things, Father Nathan Cromley, the president and founder of the St. John Institute. For many Christians today, obedience is one of the hardest things to master. After all, what is it exactly is its value? Why should we try to inculcate a spirit of obedience? How do we keep from being obedient and servile at the same time? Christ speaks in John 6 of how he came to do the will of the Father and how this will of the Father was a good thing. Let's listen to his word. Hi, everybody. I'm just so glad to be back with you again. Listening to God's holy word, we never waste time. As a matter of fact, if we really want to be effective in the realms of leadership and responsibility that Christ has given to us, we need to listen to God's holy word. It's when we listen and read the Bible, we find a wisdom that surpasses us and is at the same time eminently practical. It's a wisdom that comes forth from the Word of God Himself, who is Jesus Christ. And Jesus knows better than any of us how we should live. So we never waste time by reading the Bible. I'm thinking of here a commentary by St. Ephraim, who said, Lord, who can comprehend even one of your words? We lose more of it than we grasp, like those who drink from a living spring. For God's word offers different facets according to the capacity of the listener. And the Lord has portrayed his message in many colors so that whoever gazes upon it can see in it what suits him. Within it he has buried manifold treasures so that each of us might grow rich in seeking them out. This is why I'm just so excited as a Catholic priest to be able to preach about the word. Because I, it, it, when, when you love Scripture, you learn to love Christ the more deeply. And in an de- epic where we are besieged by many confusing propositions about what is right and what is wrong and what God expects of us, how refreshing to be able to go back to the infallible Word of God, the Bible, and read therein the message that God has for us today. And so, please, let's go ahead and bow our heads together and pray for the Holy Spirit to come and enlighten us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, O Holy Spirit, Father of the poor, illumine the hearts of thy faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us in the same spirit to be truly wise and ever to rejoice in his consolation. Through the same Christ, our Lord. Amen. St. John, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so 
Today, I want us to focus in on understanding the link between Christ's mission in this world and our own mission. And frankly, I think a lot of us struggle to really see what we do on a day-to-day basis as a mission from God. We drive to work every day. We just think of it putting in our time and we have a picture of our family on our desk and we say, that's, that's my real mission. And that's where I really need to nail it. And I would say, you're absolutely right. It's there with your family. That's number one. Uh, but some other people will actually look at that in just the inverse. And they'll be with their family on their phone, texting and wishing that they could progress further with their projects at the office because family life can just be so boring in comparison with the thrill that they have at the workplace. And in both of those, you have a separation. You either have the person who's at work wishing he was home with the family or the person who's in the family wishing that she was back at work, right? And then you throw the faith in there somewhere and you're like, and then we're all supposed to wish that we were in church. (laughs) But in all my years as a Catholic priest, I haven't found many people who are still wishing that they were in church. There are a lot of them out there, but they're all super holy, right? And the average person, it's like they're putting in their time at church in order to then go and do one of those two things that excites them the most. And woe to the person, unfortunately, who doesn't find excitement in either one. I mean, then you're just, boy, you're condemned at work, you're condemned to the family. And, you know, our life takes on shades of mediocrity to the degree that we're not imbued with the sense that we are on a mission. And so if you don't have a purpose driving you there at home, and or a purpose driving you at work that's bigger than home and bigger than work, well, eventually your both your home life and your work life and your life in general will take on that tinge of mediocrity. We'll just, we'll stop trying to dare great things. We'll tr- stop trying to make those extra efforts. It becomes just so easy to become one of the jaded majority, silently going through their life without protesting, without fighting, without striving, without innovating, and we, we shift from a mode of production and productivity into a mode of consumption. And we just, we consume the entertainment, we consume the news cycles. It's almost like the inner fire that was burning inside of us gets snuffed out. And I don't want to see this happen. I'm tired of seeing this happen. I'm, I am a priest of Jesus Christ. I've been ordained and sent into this world with his mission. And his mission was to revive the hearts that were lukewarm, and it was to heal those who were bruised by this life. Christ does not want shades of mediocrity in his followers. Do you remember what he says in the book of Revelation? He says, the hot I can stand and the cold I can stand, but the lukewarm I would vomit from my mouth. Or again, he says, do you think that I have come to bring peace? No, I tell you, not peace, but the sword. Right? From now on, mother will be divided against mother-in-law and daughter against mother and son against father. And he has all these, these words that, that speak to us that, you know, our lives are not neutral. When he himself came into the world in Luke chapter 2, remember Simeon in the temple said, here is one who is destined for the fall and the rise of many in Israel. A word who will be spoken against. A sign of contradiction. And your very soul, a sword shall pierce. And indeed, that's exactly what happened. Of course, we know when he was born, 
Shortly thereafter, Herod came in search of him and slaughtered every child under the age of two just to see if he could in fact eradicate the king from the face of this earth. This, this Savior Christ does not want us to succumb to putting our lights under the bushel baskets and hiding the city that was set on top of the hill. And yet a lot of times I find that evil doesn't even need to attack us from the outside. Evil just kind of suffocates our hearts from the inside. And it almost always comes in the same way. We forget the sense of our purpose. We lose the direction of our mission. And this is why it's so important to read in the Gospels every place where Christ speaks of his mission and remember that when he speaks of his mission, he's speaking of our mission too because we who are the members of the body of Christ carry out his mission. We are his arms and his feet and his hands in this world living and fulfilling the same mission for which he came. He sends us as he himself was sent by the Father. Father Nathan is producing an ongoing source of videos to form, unite, and inspire you and your family. Go to eagleeyeministries.org. That's E-A-G-L-E-E-Y-E ministries.org. And subscribe to Eagle Eye Pro. Subscribe today. So, you know, let's listen to the Word of God directly. Why don't you open your Bibles here? Open up to John chapter 6 with me. John chapter 6 is, of course, the discourse that Christ gives on the bread of life. He gives a discourse in his hometown synagogue of Capernaum. Remember, he was in Nazareth, and then later on he moved to Capernaum by the sea. And there he stayed, and now it's in the synagogue there in Capernaum in front of everybody who already knows him. That he speaks this incredible discourse that ends up having people ceasing to follow him. He loses disciples for the first time in the Gospel of St. John here at this, at this discourse about the bread of life. And we know well what it's, you know, I am the bread of life. And we know how that refers directly, of course, to his body and blood and the most blessed sacrament of the Eucharist. And yet, if you keep going, you see he has this really amazing statement. This is John chapter 6, verse 38. He says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is a very powerful passage. Christ speaks directly to why he came to the earth. And the very first thing that he says, he says, I have come down, and then he adds a, neg an, a negative. He says, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Now notice he puts the two in opposition. We're going to see this again in the in the agony of the garden where he says, Father, not my will, but thine be done. And this causes a lot of confusion for, for theologians because how could the will of Christ in any way be opposed or, or you know, separated from the will of the Father? And the answer is, it can't be, okay? <laughs> so rest assured 
that Jesus, who is God, you know, his will is totally submitted to the Father, but is revealing to us by that negate, that negative, that it's not doing his own will in order to emphasize just how imperative the Father's will for the salvation of the world is. That, in other words, it's not that Christ has a will different from the Father, but that his will has been so united to the Father's that he wants to emphasize that it is, in fact, the Father's will that he is carrying out. And by so doing, he kind of hides himself beneath the Father to emphasize the Father's glory. He goes behind the Father, so to speak, and says, all that I'm doing is actually the Father who's doing it through me. This is a beautiful, a beautiful truth, right? Because a lot of us struggle with a sense of obedience. We hear the need for obedience. We know we're supposed to be obedient to church authorities. We're supposed to be obedient on the church's teaching about contraception, of course. We're supposed to be obedient on the matters of life. You know, there's all kinds of like levels of Christian obedience that we are expected and we, you know, understand that Christ came and wants from us. But there's something about obedience that can rub us the wrong way. We can say, well, if I obey, aren't I squashed? Right? What's the difference between obeying and actually becoming just a pure slave, losing some of my dignity? And the more that we're engaged in actively in, you know, in engaging the culture as leaders, as politicians and lawyers and, and doctors and business managers, you know, and I mean, people, well, you know that your decision is going to have an impact on the people underneath you. And I'm thinking, of course, of our, of our public servants and the fact that their decisions could impact generations of people. You know, it's, it's really hard to say, well, it's just enough to obey. You know, because, it, it, you know, how is it that I can at the same time do the will of God and at the same time really own it and in a sense be intelligent about how I apply it and not, and not lose the dignity that I have as Christ's servant? It's a great question, and it haunts a lot of people. You know, you, you hear, you know, Catholic politicians who openly diverge from, from grave and important teachings of the Bible and of the church. And when they do that, they almost always cite it. Well, it's because, listen, you know, I'm a politician. I've got to make these big decisions. That's, that, well, that's not acceptable, but that's what they do. And then at the same time, you can understand, though, on a side, why they would do it, right? Because... If you have to think things through and you don't understand the wisdom that's found in God's word, well, then you have to stand with your conscience, you know, or so they feel. Well, I want to just say, I understand that. And I think that what's beautiful about the Catholic Church's teaching is that it's a both-and proposition and not an either-or. We want you to be fully obedient to God's word and fully obedient to the church's tradition in interpreting that word. And yet at the same time, fully alert, fully awake, fully responsible for how this word will be implemented. In other words, there's enough truth in God to satisfy all the requisites that a person needs to engage morally and responsibly in, in following with God's word. What is needed is a lot of investigation and thought at times, honest questioning, searching in the word for the truth. But at the same time, let's be confident 
that if we search in God's word for truth, we're going to find it. And if we knock at the door of God's word for an answer, he's going to give it to us. That God is not there like someone, if we ask him for an egg, will give us a serpent. Or if we ask him for a fish, will give us something worse. You know, like on the other hand, God is ready and willing to pour out his spirit without measure upon those who seek him honestly. And that's why when we look at this question of obedience, the very first thing we can notice is that Jesus doesn't hesitate to say he is in absolute obedience to the Father. And my friends, remember, there's nobody on this earth that is higher than Jesus, more glorious than Jesus, and whose position has more responsibility than that of Jesus. So if Jesus is going to say, I'm here to obey my Father, I think we should all take note, (laughs) you know? I mean, I get it that we're all really important and we think we're really important anyway, but none of us is as important as Christ. And Christ gives us an example saying, as for me, I'm here only to do the will of the Father so that we can follow in his footsteps and open our minds and our hearts to going deeper to understand because if I'm going to obey God, I need to to work even more so as to understand this wisdom with which God operates and the heights and the depths of the decision-making that God himself does. It's It's more of a challenge, in other words, for me as a leader. But that's why we're leaders, right? It's because we like these challenges. So let's step up into it. And instead of running away and saying, well, I'm gonna do my will and not God's, Why don't we say, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to try to make my will conform with God's. I'm going to do it responsibly and intelligently and by research and questioning, but I'm not going to stop ever thinking that somehow I know better than God and somehow or other, like God's word is just too hard for me and I'm not even going to try. Both of those excuses are not satisfactory for a Christian leader. Instead, let's engage the word. I say, okay, God, teach me. If I'm going to implement you in this world, I need your help. Teach me and show me the way. Father Nathan has founded the St. John Institute, the MBA program that develops students into the leaders of tomorrow by giving them a missionary's heart and an entrepreneur's mind. Visit our website at stjohninstitute.org. Dare great things for Christ. All right, so when I look again at John chapter 6, verse 38, I read, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You know, I, I want to speak to this word because this mission from Christ, which becomes our mission, is so eminently and thoroughly positive that it is a joy to proclaim it in our world today. You know, you drive every day past Catholic churches and you wonder, why, why is the church necessary? You know, what's the point anyway? We know God loves us. And that, you know, I can love God back again. He can love me in my car. He can love me on my bike. He can love me as I'm working. He can love me anytime, right? So why in the world would it be necessary for me to to go to church? What's, What's the story there? And a lot of our young people, honestly, this is exactly their problem and dilemma. 
And frankly, folks, I think that we owe them a little bit more credit than we give them because this is exactly what we've told them over the years. We've repeated, I don't know how many times, that it doesn't matter where you are and what you're doing, that God loves you. And, and we're right, we do so rightly. This is what we should be telling them because it's the truth and it's a truth that's amazing and that has impact in their life and that's absolutely essential. My, my point though is that there's another truth and that is that yes, God loves you, but do you love God? In other words, the reason for a church is not for, because God somehow needs it, but because we do. We need this effort to go back to God and proclaim our faith in him, our praise of him, and our dedication to him by the sacrifices we make by going to church at least once a week on Sundays. This is, in other words, for our sake, that we can have the dignity of someone who claims their love for God in the way that they dress, in the way that we speak, and in the actions that we do in our body through the Holy Liturgy. It's a beautiful thing. And, and yet when we do all of that, remember what we're actually doing. We're proclaiming to this world a truth that is so positive. Man, if, if we forget this truth, everybody, like woe to us. Listen to what Jesus said his purpose was. His purpose is this, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Christ promised two things there. He promised, number one, that everyone who looks and believes in him will have a life that does not end. And a life that does not end being itself the life of God. This is no small thing. You know what's present inside the doors of every single tabernacle in the Catholic Church throughout the world? Eternal life. That's what's present. God's love and God's knowledge and God's wisdom in infinity is given to us in the Catholic Church. I mean, how beautiful is this to realize the love that is in Jesus Christ is present for us. A love that goes beyond sin, that goes deeper than sin. A love that restores the brokenhearted and the lowly. A love for which every single human being has a right. I remember... One time I was preaching in, in a city where there was a, a lot of homelessness. And I gave a homily on a Saturday night at the cathedral in the city. The next morning I went over for a meeting uh, at a, a local coffee uh, house. And someone who was obviously living on the streets came and sat just across the aisle from me and stared at me during the whole of my meeting, which lasted like two hours. And I noticed him, of course, and I... You know, so afterwards I left the, the meeting and I went out the front door and this man followed me. And so I turned to him and I said, is there something I could do for you? And he said, oh no, Father, I don't, I don't want anything. I just want to let you know that I really enjoyed the homily that you gave last night. And I just wanted to compliment you. And I looked at him and, I, you know, again, he was obvious. He had all of his possessions with him. He was living on the streets and I said you go to you go to mass and he said yes father I go to mass that's my parish and it, it blew me away because I realized how beautiful our faith is in that same cathedral sitting next to folks of plenty there was a homeless person and both drinking from the same source 
this word that is God, that is life. And all of us needing, whether we have much or we have little, this proclamation of Jesus. How beautiful to open our hearts to that anew and to not be afraid of God. You know, we, we, we're tempted today in America by a type of secularism that will divorce religion from any kind of public discourse. And almost like religion has some sort of like, is a bad thing. It's a list of do's and don'ts. This is not what Jesus says. He doesn't say religion is a list of do's and don'ts. He says religion is a gift of eternal life bubbling up in your heart. And of course, there's a list of do's and don'ts because that protects that light, that life, that heart that he gives us. But religion's do's and don'ts, my friends, are expressions. They're outpourings of something deeper, of a fountain that wells up in the heart of the one who believes. The spring of living water that Christ gives to this world and that spring of living water, which is his spirit. What a gift and what a thought and a concept that when we proclaim Jesus and we proclaim that we're, our mission is to shout from the rooftops that love triumphs over all and that the love of Christ does not end. I will raise him up on the last day is a promise that Jesus makes to say that all of our relationships that we have in him as children of grace last forever. For where there is love, there is God. And he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Alleluia to the Lord, right? I mean, this just deserves us to get excited. I mean, what is negative about that proposition? Only this, don't lose it, <laughs> right? I mean, everything else about that proposition is fabulous. Don't lose it. And I think if we adopt this really positive attitude about what our mission is, our mission is to raise up everyone to eternal life and to speak to them of the hope that their life will not end when it is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That there is a way, in other words, to love without limit and to love beyond death. And that for our fallen ones who have fallen away or have passed away from this life, there is the hope of living for eternity. I owe this proclamation to the world, says John Paul II, that God loves you, that God's eternal life has been given to you. And as I dedicate myself to the secular enterprises of my business and my profession, let me remember that I do so in that effort to inject into this otherwise sometimes dreary world the hope of eternal life and the dawn of the knowledge of the destiny that we have as the children of God, this destiny sealed for us and given to us by our Savior. Dare great things for Christ. Share your feedback with Father Nathan. Send us an email at info at stjohninstitute.org. That's info at stjohninstitute.org. And don't forget to subscribe to premium video content to form, unite, and inspire you at Eagle Eye Pro on our website, eagleeyeministries.org. That's eagleeyeministries.org.